Hello and welcome to Freelancing for Journalists. I'm Emma Wilkinson. And I'm Lily Cantor. This series of the podcast will be a little bit different because we're speaking to the winners of our Freelance Journalism Awards. Yes, we're really excited to chat to them in more detail about their freelance careers and their award-winning journalism. So we will introduce our guest for this episode in a minute, but first let's do our freelance highlight of the week. Lily, what's yours? I think I've got a good one this week. Um, I've got a really good press trip coming up this weekend. I am going to Love Trails, which is a running festival, quite niche. Um, but I've got press tickets for me and my family. Um, they're putting up, us up in a teepee. So we're going to have actual beds. Um, and there's loads of great stuff going on. We're going rock climbing, running, obviously. There's a spa. There's a thing called a beer mile where you have to down a can of beer and then um, run for 400 metres um, and then go on to the next person. <laughs> it's like a relay, so I might be doing that. Um, and then, yeah, obviously I'm writing up about it for Run As Well, but it sounds like a really fun weekend, so I'm looking forward to that. Can you well, that top that, good. Emma? <laughs> no, not at all. I don't get those kind of perks working in kind of NHS health journalism. <laughs> Um, but yes, my highlight is I did get a really nice bit of feedback from an editor about a piece I'd done. And, you know, nothing major, nothing earth shattering, just that they liked it and it read well. And thanks for getting all those voices in there. And it was just nice because quite often, especially I think if you've worked for people for a long time, you just become a bit part of the furniture. So you mm. don't necessarily get that feedback. It's just like, oh, thanks. And then next thing you know, it's published and you've not yeah. kind of heard anything. Um, so it's just always nice to hear that someone's actually read it and appreciated all the kind of effort that that went into it. Yeah, it's those nice little platitudes, isn't it, that we that do brighten our days as freelancers. So that's good to hear. And also you, that you're not kind of, I don't know, complacent as well, that you know that they kind of still appreciate you. <laughs> you're still doing Yeah, exactly. Job. I'm not just I'm not just kind of someone who will churn out the copy, but they actually quite liked what I was producing it's always good it's always nice to know that isn't it yes definitely okay right it's time to introduce this week's guest today we have with us Gabriella Zuzviak who won our best print journalist category this one was sponsored by the NUJ and it had an awful lot of entries but Gabriella won the award for her work covering the impact of the Ukraine war and providing a voice to children in conflict. Her pieces include how the youngest children are adapting, preparing to get back to school and what it means for those caring for them. Congratulations on the win, Gabriella. Thank you so much. It's really, um, yeah, it was a real surprise. I know I said that in my, in my tweet when I found out, but I really wasn't expecting it. Fantastic. Um, our judges said your articles were a pleasure to read and descriptive, emotive and well-researched. And we've got lots of questions for you about reporting on these pieces and how they came about. But first, let's find out a bit more about you. Tell us sort of how you became a freelance journalist in the first place. Well, um, I've been freelance for almost 10 years now. Um, so I went freelance back in 2013. Um, I I didn't go straight into journalism from university. I did. I did train as a journalist but then I couldn't get a job um like lots of starting out journalists and I ended up in PR for a few years um but I finally got into a communications team in a charity that looked after 
websites for young people. And from there I moved into a trade press magazine called Children and Young People Now as a reporter, um, which is actually a magazine I still freelance for now, all these years later. Um, I was made redundant quite quickly after I got that job because of all the cuts to public sector funding back in sort of 2010. Um, and I, then I got that job back again two years later, but in between while I did some volunteering in Sierra Leone in West Africa um, with young children, with street children. Um, so by the time I got back to that magazine, um, I was still really enthusiastic about reporting on children in the UK. But I also had at the back of my mind this kind of amazing experience I'd had in Sierra Leone. And I had actually written one article while I was out there, which is the first piece I ever wrote from a foreign country. Um, and I had really enjoyed the experience of writing um, about issues affecting children in different countries. So, yeah, I decided to go freelance, basically, because I wanted to write about children in other countries. And there's no publication that does that specifically. So I thought I would see if I could just carve my own space, really. Yeah, it's really interesting niche to have that because it's obviously going to be topics that affect everyone around the world and there's always going to be a place for those stories but like you say no no one else is kind of covering that so it's it's always interesting to see these kind of niches that different freelancers carve out um perhaps though you could tell us a bit more about kind of the the stories that came out um of of the award that you won because you made some specific decisions when the war in ukraine was announced and although you'd done some reporting overseas before I believe you hadn't done any war reporting so can you tell us more about kind of those decisions that you had to make and, and how you went about kind of getting yourself out there? Yeah so it, it was um, for me quite a big leap because um, I've got three children and when the war broke out last year on the 24th of February they were aged two, um, four and six uh, but I, I did feel kind of straight away when when that happened this real kind of need to be to be reporting on children because I, I kind of partly I think it's a personal thing because um Ukraine is obviously a bordering country with Poland I'm half Polish and when the war began I obviously I was concerned about the Ukrainians but I also really believed at the very beginning that the war would spread quite quickly and that my own family was going to be implicated in it um but also I think that experience in Sierra Leone, um, working with children, um, by then it, it was 10 years after the, the civil war in Sierra Leone had ended, but it was still incredibly visible, the impact it had on children that had been alive during the war, but also ones that had been born subsequently. Um, and I know that comparing an African country is very different from, from a European country, but um, in terms of kind of how children experience trauma and how they can recover from it, um, there's so much research that shows you know, even a small incident in a child's life can impact them forever and, and kind of destroy their futures in some, in some way. So it just seemed like really important that somebody was out there reporting on children in Ukraine as early as possible because I, I do believe in the power of journalism to kind of provoke reaction and, and to encourage um, people to go out there and try and help as much as they could. Um, but I obviously couldn't just sort of put up my hand at home and say like, hey, is it okay if I just go to a war zone, um, do some freelance journalism, um, leave the kids with you and, you know, I'm sure I'll be fine, nothing will happen to me. Um, I hadn't actually left the children for more than one night, um, you know, since they were born. So I hadn't done any foreign reporting since 2015. And actually all the foreign reporting I'd done before that had 
been a little bit kind of ad hoc. It usually happened when I'd been in the country for another reason. So maybe I was working with a charity doing some copywriting or something like that. Um, and then I'd, I don't know, something had happened and I'd pitched a story about it from, from the location. Um, so I was really looking for a kind of platform or a kind of backing to enable me to go there. Um, and I, I had noticed before the war broke out um, an advert for a fellowship with the Dart Centre for Trauma and Journalism, which is a project at Columbia Journalism School in New York. And I'd never applied for anything like that before. I'm not really familiar with how fellowships work. Um, but they wanted you to to, pro to um, propose a research project. So you, you have a story in mind that you want to write. You've already got the backing of editors. You had to send letters from editors to say that they were interested in potentially publishing your story and then you and then you could get a place in this fellowship um, and it was specifically focused on early childhood which is something that I write about so uh, as well as children and young people now magazine I've also written for nursery world magazine for many years which is my early education in the UK um, but I just didn't have the, anything in mind at the time when it came out um, and, and then the war broke out and then I noticed that the deadline had been extended so I just thought well I'm sure that they would like somebody on the fellowship who's focusing on Ukraine, as this is obviously going to be a key trauma issue for early childhood. So I put together this proposal, which in my mind was pretty vague, because um, I didn't really know what I was going to write about yet. I just said I'd like to go there and do what I can. Um, and I, I threw myself at every editor who'd ever commissioned me, basically, and was like, please, can you send a letter supporting my application? And I got, I got them back, which I was really surprised about. Um, and I got this place in the fellowship, um, so that was in April, and that was kind of it, I was like, right, well, here we are, like, I've got to go now, <laughs> um, but then it, it was, um, a huge sort of logistical challenge, actually, organising this trip, um, I really had to stop doing any paid work for a while, and just completely throw myself into logistics of trying to understand, like, how to get there, where to stay, like what transport to use, you know, how to get a photographer, how to get a translator. Um, I had to get military accreditation as a journalist to work in the country. And to do that, I needed a press card, which I didn't have because um, I know that's not very good practice as a freelancer not to be a member of the NEJ or any other union. But I, I just hadn't, I was working part time. I didn't think I really needed it. Um, I wanted to go there as soon as I could because I thought um, I just want to kind of I'm in the zone now I just want to go there and do it and also I was aware that the summer holidays were coming up and although um, schools were not really operating as usual and obviously like the, the kind of holiday wasn't really going to happen in Ukraine as it would do here because you're focusing on children I think it's always really useful to try and do that kind of work in term time. Um, NEJ was actually really great and they fast-tracked my application so I managed to get hold this press card um, and I got the accreditation. Um, I reached out to every sort of journalist I knew that did anything related to foreign reporting, asking for advice. And people were just really generous at their time and would talk to me on the phone, even from Ukraine, and, and give me some advice. I got um, put onto some really helpful Facebook groups with foreign reporters or journalists working in Ukraine, where you, I could read through all the questions people were asking, which were similar to the questions I had, and learn from that. Um, I then um, had a really good piece of advice from the Dart Centre. They suggested that I should do um, a hostile awareness environment training, which is called heat training, um, which I, I'd heard about these courses before. They, they prepare you to work you know, in hostile environments, so 
teach you kind of um, first aid that would be useful in a kind of war environment or how to defend yourself if anything happens or what happens in a hostage situation. Um, obviously I never thought that was useful to me working in the UK um, and also these courses can cost thousands of pounds. Um, and my dart centre story coach, um, she actually found a free course for me um, but it was right in the middle of half term and we had a family holiday booked in Wales so I couldn't do that um, but I managed to find another one and then she also put me onto the Rory Peck Trust which is a really fantastic organisation that again I really, didn't really have it on my radar that supports freelance journalists and they um, actually gave me a bursary towards this training so that really helped with those costs. Um, and another big challenge was to have this accreditation um, in Ukraine, you had to have a helmet and a, a body vest. Um, and I, I, by that point, decided that I wasn't going to go really deep into the country. Um, for the story that I wanted to write, which was about interviewing children and families, it, I could go to Lviv, which is about 70 kilometres um, across from the Polish border. That was where the most number of internally displaced people were living. So there was you know, ample stories for me then. I didn't also have that much time. I, I could only really be away for a week or 10 days. And because of um, the size of Ukraine, it, it just takes so long to, to travel. Even to go to Kyiv, I would have had to spend a day getting there and another day getting back. So I wanted to maximise my time there. Um, so I didn't think I really needed the, the body vest and helmet. I wasn't planning on going anywhere that was that dangerous. However, you needed it for this accreditation. And these things are also really expensive. Um, and I did look on eBay because I was trying to find something affordable. And actually, at that time was when a lot of Ukrainians in the UK or from other parts of Europe were travelling to the country to join the fighting. And they were actually buying up a lot of that equipment. So there really wasn't anything available. Um, this was a big problem for me, um, but once again the Rory Peck Trust came to my rescue and they organised some kit for me to collect when I got to Lviv, so that was fine. But yeah, all of this just took so much time um, to organise and I only work three short days a week around childcare. Um, that was all the logistics without even beginning to think about the stories, because then of course I had to start networking with local organisations and setting up interviews. Um, and again, I wanted to do as much kind of observation and on the ground stuff as I could while I was there and not be sitting just interviewing people for hours kind of one to one. So I did as much on Zoom before I left as I could. Um, so, yeah, it was it was a quite a hectic time. And also, you know, I was feeling nervous, as you can imagine. <laughs> yeah, yeah, of course. I mean, it's a huge amount of preparation there to go into this before you even started and it's it's really useful to hear about those organizations as well that you reached out to and kind of where as a freelancer you can get support for this type of work um but then what did that feel like once you actually got there because then you've you spent way longer in the preparation than the time that you've got when the, you're there. What, what did those, were you there for, were it, was it a week you were there for? What did that feel like? Yeah, so I, I flew um, to Krakow um, and I know Krakow really well, um, so that was all fine. And then I got, a, I actually ended up getting a, a coach across the border. Um, and it, yeah, it's, it was strange kind of to actually realise, oh, I'm here now, I'm in the country. But, you know, like the sun is shining and people getting on with, with daily life just because you, that's what you do in this kind of situation. Um, Lviv is a ridiculously beautiful city. I mean, I, I kind of came back and was saying to people, 
if there wasn't a war going on, I'd be telling you all to go there for a, a romantic weekend break. It's it's incredible. It's a UNESCO heritage site. Um, and it's just really quite dazzling how amazing it is there. But obviously, you know, the war is is all around you. Um, so I did see, you know, like funerals every day for, for people that were being killed on the front line. Um, there are sandbags everywhere. There are signs everywhere directing you to air raid shelters. There are scaffolding up on some of the buildings and the statues. Um, when you're driving around, you know, in the countryside, you'll suddenly see a small kind of, like a man guarding something, like a bridge. Um, but actually, Lviv Centre has not been bombed. Like it hadn't been bombed there, and it still hasn't. So you don't see sort of damage like you will do if you if you went kind of further west. Um, and when I got there, um, my photographer. So I ended up hiring a local photographer, and he came to meet me. Um, and I'd found him through the Lviv Media Centre, which is something that they've set up in the in the town centre. And I specifically said I was looking for a photographer who had experience working with children and he'd done some work with UNICEF before, so he, he was really excellent and really kind of chatty and engaging with the children. And um, he actually gave me a bit of a crash course about what to do, the sirens went off and where to go, and he set up all these apps on my phone for me so that if I didn't hear the siren, I'd still get an alert through Telegram and that kind of thing. And it just, I mean, in a way, it felt a little bit like during COVID, how we'd been drummed into all these like new ways of operating. He was just kind of like, right, this is what we do now. And if the alarm goes off, don't run, it's fine. You've got time to pick up your bags and get to the shelter calmly, you'll be okay. Um, so the first day I had organised um, to spend the day at a kindergarten. So I had one sort of definite commission for this trip, which was from Nursery World, which was to kind of observe how earlier sector was responding. And this was a, a kindergarten that had opened about three weeks or four weeks after the war had broken out, so it was quite um, soon. And it was just, I felt like it was a good place to start because I would understand the environment pretty well. Um, and I knew the director well by then as well because I'd done lots of interviews with her over the phone. Um, and then I had a really packed schedule because I just wanted to get as much done as I could in the time that I had. So I, I don't know if that's similar to how um, journalists in-house on foreign desks operate because it was literally like three or four meetings a day, like we didn't often stop. Luckily the photographer and the child editor were cool with that um, and they just got on with it. Um, but really like people from organisations were very keen to meet me because they just wanted to get their stories out and keep raising awareness of what was happening. Um, I really wanted to spend some time with UNICEF because they're obviously the biggest agency working with children. And it took about six weeks to, to secure those interviews. But in the end, I, I had a whole day with them, um, shadowing their mobile team. And they took me to three different um, locations around the city where they were supporting um, it, the internally displaced people. Um, we had a, a bit of trouble sometimes accessing public services. So I wanted to go and visit a public kindergarten and a hospital. But um, even though I had military accreditation, by then the regional authority had also decided that they wanted to accredit journalists that were going into any of their services because what I think I wasn't prepared for was just how many journalists were out there. I mean, obviously it is like the biggest story. <laughs> there was so many journalists there. And I think there had been a lot of um, bad practice going on or people posting photographs online that could potentially be used by like Russians to, to geolocate things so they were being really careful um, but because I had local 
a local photographer and, and my translator, they kind of knew people who knew people and we managed to sort that out. So that was really fortunate. That, that was like a big learning curve. It's always really important to work with local people. Um, so kind of... And did you find... Yeah, sorry, I, I just wondered, you said you had one commission already, but did you find as you were out there, you were picking up kind of more ideas for stories? Yeah, so a, a lot of the people I write for um, had sort of agreed in principle to publish something, but they'd all said, obviously, come back and tell us what you find. So it was a kind of a strange way to work because I realised I just had to go out there and kind of harvest as much material as I possibly could and then arrange it into some sort of narrative. Um, at the end of the week, I just I just had so much material, <laughs> so many interviews and so many case studies. And, and that was a real challenge when I got back, was first of all to get through it all again because a lot of it was, you know, it was in Ukrainian then being translated. It was the recordings were long and slow and I had to listen to all of them again and they'll also check a lot of details and look things up and then I just was just doing so many like spider diagrams and trying to think like which what links to what um, and because I was looking at early childhood and young children obviously you can't interview young children you can't interview babies like the small children I met in the kindergarten or in the orphanage I was really aware, and this is partly from my training from the Dart Centre, is that you can't ask them too direct questions because you don't want to start triggering like a traumatic response in a child and these children had been through terrible things. So a lot of what I was doing was observing. So I'd be interviewing the caregivers or the parents um, or the professionals around them to try and get the facts of the story. But then I really had to spend a lot of time just watching children. Or, you know, sometimes I would chat to them a bit, but I wouldn't ask them, you know, oh, you know, you're your home got bombed and how are you feeling or your dad's dead how do you feel like that I wouldn't ever ask them that kind of question so a lot of my notes were kind of really scribbly like you know my poor shorthand like oh this looked like this looked like that so yeah it was quite tricky then to amass it all in a way and package it into a pitch um and my my big like aim was obviously to get a story into the nationals and I did have like visions of like you know I'm gonna have a whole colour feature out of this but I got back and I realised like I was in a really competitive area because not only was it like the big story, but also m most of the nationals had their own people on the ground out there, um, and they still do. Um, like I, I remember pitching once to to from our own correspondent at the BBC, and I've written for them before, and she just said to me, she's like, look, you know, I've got no doubt you do something really nice for us. However, I can't commission you because we've got our own people there. Um, and that was kind of what I had a lot of the time. And that was really frustrating because I had sort of put so much into it. Um, yeah. And because you were, you were doing something that was, I think, a bit more unusual or a different topic to kind of the other reporting that had been coming out of the country as well. I mean, is there something, it might be a particular piece that you did or it might be a particular interview or a visit that you did. Is there something that you're kind of particularly proud of that stands out from that time? Yeah, so you're right. That, that's why I had to keep telling myself is like, what's my my kind of USP here and it was that I'm looking at children and I'm looking specifically at early childhood and I'm trying to tell the story slightly from a scientific point of view because we're talking about childhood brain development and what might happen in the future. Um, so I was really really pleased that I got a commission from the Telegraph. Um, so I wrote um, for one of their global security um, for, that, for that section but it actually got passed on to the foreign desk in the end. Um, and I hooked that onto, as you said, I picked up 
um, the line and I was out there that the government was trying to reopen schools in September and to do this they were insisting that every school could provide a bomb shelter for children and this was a huge like challenge for schools some of them did have basements but if they did they often weren't big enough for the whole like population of pupils so that was something that I really pursued while I was out there because I knew that was a really good date hook that the 1st of September would be something that people would, would be looking towards so I, I, I kind of managed to package up my the thing I wanted to get out, which was about the mental health aspect and, and young young children, but onto the hook of schools are trying to prepare to reopen during war. Um, and The Telegraph ran it. It ends up becoming a really long piece. Um, and after they published it, about two or three days later, they did a follow-up piece and they contacted me again and asked me to, to contribute to that. Um, and then one thing I'm really, really proud of is that I then went on to, to speak on their podcast. So they have um, a daily podcast called um, Ukraine the Latest, and I've been on it three times now, always giving an update on the situation of children in the country. And I haven't done podcasts before, so that, that was, yeah, really, I'm really pleased about that. And the best thing about that is that we get a really good response to that, and I get really great comments, and people are really grateful to hear about what children are going through. So it is an important story. Yeah, and it sounds like you have very much become the expert in this area, even if there was a lot of competition out there. And I wonder kind of what your advice might be to other freelancers who kind of maybe want to do something similar and take that leap. And there's all these different logistics they've got to think about and the time and money it's going to cost them. What would your sort of top tips be for them? Um, well, kind, of, kind of what you were saying is, is you know, be aware of the organisations out there that you can reach to because I, I wasn't um, and now I realise there are so many like pots of funding out there or charities that can support you or training that's not expensive that you can do um, and I think I had been operating in a bit of a bubble just thinking you know I'm freelance I work on my own I sit in my little office and bash things out but actually you, you, you can be part of something bigger than that um, because you feel like you're on your own a lot of the time and I feel like that and I know I never thought I was someone that was going to go off and hire my own photographer and translate it but you just do it and you can do it and you realize like just just go for it just try I do like I do like that attitude <laughs> and the, and also just the fact that you were quite persistent about thinking about okay so my original idea for where I was going to pitch this to hasn't you know necessarily paid off what else can I do with this idea that kind of mindset I think is really important um is there anything that you've kind of learned from that experience that you would that you've since applied to kind of other things that you've worked on or how you approach freelancing in general do you think um I've definitely become like less accepting of the no like you were just saying like I I've I kind of feel a bit crazy sometimes and that I won't take no for an answer anymore I always want a reason if somebody turns something down and I will be persistent and I will keep going and I do think you you sort of have learned that you aim high with your stories and if that doesn't work you keep going even until it gets to something where you didn't get paid but at least it got published and, and you got it off your chest kind of thing um but I think in terms of the skills is one thing you know I've learned on the fellowship and also working with these children who have been through so much is is just about trying to do no harm and that most important thing for me when I'm working with children is the child and that I wouldn't compromise like their sort of security or safety or happiness for a story I feel like 
um, sometimes in journalism you're taught, you know, that the, the, the end point is the story and that's the most important thing. But I think I've realised now that I wouldn't be proud of a story like that. So I kind of try and be really sensitive now about the way that I interview people and who I approach and how I handle things. And I guess that might link into what I was going to ask you about next, because I believe you're going to be helping with some training sessions um, for journalists in Bulgaria and Romania. Can you tell us a bit more about that? Yes, actually, um, I've done that now. Um, I came back from Bulgaria on Saturday and this is all through the Dark Centre again. So that fellowship ended at the end of last year and I thought that would be it. But then they got in touch with me and asked me if I could help deliver, first of all, some training. It was a workshop for three days in Bucharest in Romania with journalists there, so yeah, teaching them how to report on sensitive topics like sensitively, how to work with children um, and kind of how trauma can affect children's brain development and that kind of thing. Um, and then in Bulgaria it was actually um, a conference where we were discussing youth more generally um, and I did a panel discussion on on children and on youth um, about kind of stories that I'd done and what I thought I'd done well and lessons that I've learned from things I've done wrong and um, why it's important to remember children in reporting and how to convince editors to, to include children in your reporting. It's it's really interesting how that sort of come full circle from your reaching out to that first application kind of not knowing what that would mean or not having you know just having seen that spark of idea and, and now they're kind of asking you to come back and and do that training that's really I think I feel like that's a nice place to round up the episode as we've kind of come full circle round so we're going to ask you the same thing we've been asking all our awards winners which are your favorite thing about freelancing um what do you find most frustrating about freelancing and your top freelancing tip mm -hmm. so yeah let's start with your favorite thing so yeah my favorite thing is is being my own boss and there not being a hierarchy and yeah like I was saying you just can do what you want to do when you want to do it or write about what you want to write about um ask somebody who's like way up higher than you for something even if you think you're not big enough to do that you can just go for it and no one can tell you not to do that good answer <laughs> <laughs> most frustrating thing um so yeah it's definitely about maintaining boundaries um I've you know had that experience I'm sure lots of freelancers have when you you think you're on holiday um but then somebody some, somewhere is emailing mm. you and saying, oh, actually, I want to publish that thing that you sent me about six months ago. And do you think you could just rewrite it for me? Because if you don't do it now, I'm not going to publish it. <laughs> so suddenly you're yeah. like, oh, OK, right, I better do that. <laughs> I had that in Barbados last year. I had, oh, can you quickly just give us a comment on this for this section that we're doing? Which I did, and then they never used it. Yeah. <laughs> so I should have just ignored it in the first place. Exactly. Yeah. Oh, yeah, it's a classic, isn't it? Uh, and yeah, so your your top freelancing tip? Um, yeah, so I was thinking about how I probably spent many years wondering like when I would feel like I was happy with my work or that I'd made it. And I, I think I used to judge myself on how much I was being paid or if I was writing for you know, a national newspaper or not. But I realise now that I feel really happy and content with the fact that I'm just writing about um, a subject I'm really passionate about and I'm sort of becoming like a bit of an authority on that so I think it's important for freelancers to kind of define for themselves what success is and to carve your own path. That is an excellent tip thank you very much for that. 
Okay, now it's time for the episode to close. Thank you so much for speaking to us, Gabriella. That's been fascinating. And congratulations again on your win. Very well deserved. Oh, thank you so much for organising the awards. Um, I think it's so important to recognise what freelancers do and you're really helping. So thank you so much. Yeah, I think we've had so many people say that since we did the awards. And I think it the quality of uh, entrants that we had, I think it just shows kind of how much of... Uh, you know freelancers are relied upon to produce all this excellent good quality work and we, we do need that big round of applause okay so if you are enjoying the podcast and you want to hear some bonus episodes you can subscribe to the premium version of our newsletter for just £3.33 a month for this you get resource lists and pitching examples to find out more head to Substack and search for freelancing for journalists And if you want to make more connections, come and join our Freelancing for Journalists Facebook community of 6,000 members. And you can also head over to our new and improved website, which is now finally up and running. And you can look at all our resources via that. And that's freelancingforjournalists.com. Yeah, come find us on social media. If Twitter's still working at this point, um, we are at Freelancing4. And you can follow us individually. I'm at Emma Journo. And I'm at Lily Cantor. And finally, we just want to say thank you to our producer, Maddie Jury, and also a huge thank you to all our Freelance Journalism Awards sponsors. Without them, the awards wouldn't have been able to go ahead. And they were not only the NUJ, but also Women in Journalism, Lightbulb, 5WH, Journalism.co.uk, The Media Mentor and News Associates. Yes, big thank you to all of them. And uh, we'll be back with another episode soon. Bye, everyone. Goodbye.